0: The Bible has got to be the most influential book ever written. And to many people, it is the complete Word of God. So what if I told you that it's not complete, that in fact many books and psalms and religious writings were left out, many deliberately not included? Today, I'm talking with the eminent religious scholar, Dr. Joel Hoffman, about his book the Bible's cutting room floor. And we talk about these books, but we also talk about something else that seems not to be included in these religious discussions. And and this really surprised me a lot. Jesus had a brother, James. My name's Craig Barfoot, and you're listening to Pod Academy. Joel, thanks for taking the time to have a chat with me today. Oh, it's a treat. When did we start using this word Bible for this particular collection of writings?
1: The notion of the Bible came about as a result, believe it or not, of new technology. All of a sudden, they discovered a way of binding leaves together to form what we would now call books, and that paved the way for the Bible. Before that, they only had collections of scrolls. So it's really that technological innovation that made it possible to create a Bible.
0: I find this, and I think this is what really drew me to your book, I I find it so interesting that this change in technology from the scroll to the book had such a big impact on religion.
1: It had a huge impact on religion, and I think an unintended one. I think when they discovered the book, they thought, wow, you know what we could put in a book? We could put some of our holy writings into a book form, and they did. But I don't think they ever intended to exclude the other holy writings the way they have now become marginalized.
0: Can you go into that a a little bit more and just explain this process for us?
1: Well, imagine you have a whole bunch of things that you value. I like to compare it to a museum. Let's say you have a whole bunch of uh, pieces of art that you want people to know about. Uh, You might put some of them in the front lobby. Say, you know, these are things that we'd like to call your attention to to help you fully appreciate the sorts of things we have. So you create a front lobby with a bit of art. Um, You certainly don't mean for people to stop at the front lobby and never walk into the museum. You just mean that the front lobby is an example, sort of maybe highlights of what you have, And I think the Bible was originally supposed to be the same thing. It was supposed to be sort of a front lobby, as if to say, here are some of our most treasured writings, Um, maybe even purposely including the full breadth of what's available, uh, but certainly not including everything that's available. The idea I don't think was ever to stop reading the Holy Scriptures at the end of the Bible.
0: When we when we're looking at the Bible and the books being left out of the Bible, I mean, what how how large is this collection of non included work?
1: The collection of non-included work is bigger than the collection in the Bible itself. Really, there are many. Yeah, oh, oh yeah, there are many more writings that were not included than were included. Uh, some of these go by the technical name of pseudopigrapha, um, which um, sort of means written under someone else's name, though it's a misleading title, and I can get back to that later if you'd like. But we also have all the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those are sort of biblical in nature. Um, the historical writings of Josephus uh, were not meant to be in the Bible, but it's impossible to understand the Bible without knowing what Josephus writes. Uh, So depending upon where exactly you draw the line, there's either much more that was excluded or much, much more that was excluded.
0: Uh, I'll definitely touch on uh, the historical uh, writer Josephus uh, in in a moment. But picking up on on the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, you comment in your book that reading the Bible without taking them into consideration is like reading a book report instead of the whole book. So, Why are they so important?
1: The Dead Sea Scrolls give us a flavor of which kinds of debates were going on in antiquity. Um, They give us a sense of what kinds of things people were writing. So if you only look at the Bible, you don't know whether you're seeing one example of a general kind of debate or whether you're seeing the only answer or a novel answer. It's also additional information that they provide. The Dead Sea Scrolls give us a window into some of the books that were excluded from the Bible. Um, The current Bible has 150 Psalms, for example. It turns out There were more. The 150 is just a collection of best of. You know, it's the best of the psalms. Here are the 150 best ones. But there were others that were excluded, that were just uh, as much a psalm as anything else in antiquity. Now, um, one of them, for example, starts along the lines of um, a worm cannot sing your praises and a maggot cannot laud you. So it's not really a surprise that that one was left out. It doesn't, you know, have the same flavor and, you know, same sort of poetry as the Lord is my shepherd. But there are others that are actually quite magnificent.
0: And I mean, after these Psalms, for example, have come to light, is there a movement to include them in the current work that we call the Bible?
1: Uh, It's funny you should ask. When we find material from the Dead Sea Scrolls, like Psalms, uh, or like um, mistakes in Deuteronomy, we found a mistake in Deuteronomy uh, by looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls. When we find these new insights into the Bible, Jews and Christians take different paths. Jews tend not to update the Bible at all, as far as Jews are concerned. And this, of course, is mainstream Judaism. There's a huge gamut, obviously. But Jews tend not to update the Bible. For Jews, the Bible is what it is as a result of the tradition of the past 3,000 years. Christians, on the other hand, are much more likely to update the Bible based on what they find in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And again, it's a generalization. But by and large, Christians are more interested in what the Bible, especially the Hebrew Bible, was like 2,000 years ago when, for example, Jesus would have read it. So if we have a mistake over the past 2,000 years, and if you're worried about or concerned about or want to know about what Jesus thought, then more insight into the Bible of 2,000 years is only a good thing religiously, uh, whereas if you're Jewish it's a matter of historical curiosity but not really an important religious matter
0: Joel is is there a way that you can simply give me a uh, this this history and the transition of the writings of the Bible:
1: A, a simple way of explaining how the writings uh, became the Bible?: Yeah no <laughs> I I could write a book that would start to explain it, and even that wouldn't give the whole answer. Uh, I I, I guess the only simple answer to how the ancient writings uh, became the Bible is to look at the kinds of things that influence whether a book would be included or excluded. And they include uh, sometimes happenstance, they include sometimes theological considerations, uh, and sometimes political considerations. You know, a a dear friend of mine and a mentor uh, once said that the most important question you can ask about any historical document is who paid for it. And so in that sense you want to ask yourself what forces were involved in creating the Bible. So uh, maybe a good example would be the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch was hugely popular in antiquity. People loved the Book of Enoch. Everybody knew about the Book of Enoch. We have copies of the Book of Enoch found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's quoted in the New Testament. It explains the background of the Old Testament. It was as mainstream as any religious text could be. But then in the um, first few centuries AD, religion whitewashed Enoch from the canon because it didn't fit with the message they were trying to promulgate
0: why? What was the the difference in messages?
1: Enoch has an answer to why bad things happen to good people or more generally to the cosmic question of why is my life like this. And in essence, that's the question religion asks. Religion wants to know why is my life like this, uh, and I guess secondarily, what should I then do with my life? And Enoch's answer was that the world is a little bit out of control. As I describe in the book, Enoch starts with the assumption that the world was perfect, and then realizes that things have gone awry. This is not the world God intended. Now, if you were living in Jerusalem two thousand years ago, if you were living at the end of a thousand years of the Jewish temple standing at the center of religion. If you were living at the end of a thousand years of a glorious life in Jerusalem and watching the Romans destroy it, this message that God's world has gone awry resonated deeply. In fact, I think it resonates deeply with modern people who read the Bible and look at their lives. Look at war in the Middle East of all places. It makes a lot of sense to say, maybe this isn't what God wanted and that's what Enoch wrote Enoch said God's world has gone awry and people loved it but then once you had Judaism and Christianity Jews wanted to tell people the reason to be Jewish is that God will take care of you and Christians wanted to tell people the reason to be Christian is is that God will take care of you. Well, for that to be true, God had to be perfectly in control, and they couldn't have the book of Enoch around anymore, and so it's not in most people's Bible. Uh,
0: I, uh, maybe I'm just quite naive, but Jesus had a brother, James?
1: Yes, Jesus had a brother, James, which is a theological problem for some people.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah c- c- so um, could you, uh, can you go into a little bit about how we know this, and uh, (laughs) have we always known this? Uh,
1: Yes, we've always known that Jesus has a brother James of some sort. In fact, that Jesus has siblings of some sort. Um, The problem arises when you consider Mary's role. Um, If you believe that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born, Jesus could certainly still have brothers and sisters, for that matter. If, on the other hand, as people later came to believe, Mary remained a virgin, and if you believe that there was only one person born of a virgin birth, namely Jesus, then you have to wonder, how is it possible that Jesus has siblings? And the usual theological answer to that is that Jesus has brothers in the sense that aren't we all brothers when we're in this endeavor together? And so the brothers that Jesus has Uh, were transformed into fellows, or uh, co-religionists, or people whom he liked, or people um, with whom he congregated. But yes, we've always known that Jesus had a brother. And one of the ways we know is the historian Josephus writes about James.
0: I I mean, talk about sibling rivalry. I mean, (laughs) being asked, what does your brother do? Oh, He's the son of God. I mean, that's tough.
1: (laughs) I have actually uh, never thought about it in those terms and I love it because sibling rivalry plays such an important role in uh, the Old Testament.
0: So could you just explain just quickly who is this historian uh, Josephus and uh, why is he so important?
1: Josephus was the preeminent historian of his day, and his day was just after the life of Jesus, and he was very, very careful and copious in what he wrote. Most of what we know about the time period, the hundred years um, before Jesus' life to the hundred years after, uh, is either comes directly from Josephus or is largely informed by Josephus. He also was born in Jerusalem. He was Jewish, so he was part of that circle, and then he moved to Rome, ended up among the highest echelons of the Roman power structure, so he knew that circle as well. This gave him sort of a bird's eye view of everything that was going on in maybe the most influential time period in history.
0: And was, was he influenced by, by Jesus at all? Was he part of the, the Christian uh, belief?
1: He was not part of the Christian belief, he remained Jewish his whole life, uh, and uh, in fact he did not think that Jesus was the Messiah. When he writes about Jesus he says, whom people call the Messiah, uh, which I guess is his job as an historian. He's saying this is what people are saying, he, and it's not his job to either confirm it or deny it.
0: And he, uh, he, from his source then he's the one that's talking about Jesus and his, his brother James.
1: Yes, he's the one who's talking about Jesus. In fact, he's really talking about uh, James. And he mentions uh, James's brother Jesus to give the reader a little bit of context on the reasonable assumption that everyone would have heard of Jesus.
0: That's really incredible. Um, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I'm, that's a side point of your book, so I don't want to go into it too much. But I, I just, I was quite taken aback by that. Um, it just seems to be brushed under the carpet a little bit.
1: You mean Jesus' brother? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there there are a lot of aspects of antiquity that we don't focus on, partly because we only read the Bible. And this is one example. You know, you can sort of decide whether you care um, that, that Jesus had a brother or not. And many people do care and many people don't care. Uh, but this is one way in which it's very hard to actually read the, in this case, New Testament and understand it without looking at background material. Um, you know, it's it's a lot like the way in modernity we don't include the things that are very, very obvious. Uh, you know, you and I are talking overseas. I'm in New York and you're in Berlin. Uh, I think it would be fairly insulting to our listeners if I added, uh, after saying New York, I said. You know, that's in the United States. Uh, Or if I um, said Germany is in Europe, don't you know? Sort of an insulting thing to add. We can assume that people listening know where Germany is and know where New York is. And for that matter, know where Europe is. The same thing was true of uh, the Bible. They didn't include the things that absolutely everybody knew. And that's why frequently we have to refer to sources like Josephus or the Dead Sea Scrolls for that matter, because they detail the things that the Bible just didn't bother including.
0: What would you say, in terms of perception, is the main difference between how we look at the Bible today and how it was seen one or two thousand years ago?
1: I'd say the biggest difference between how we read the Bible today and how it was read 2,000 years ago is that now we think that there is one answer to things. There's one answer to the question of which books are holy. There is one answer to the question of why do people suffer. There is one answer to what is God like. In antiquity, there were lots of answers. You could have different answers that contradicted each other side by side. I think the reason we don't like that approach anymore, and I suspect that people hearing that answer um, tend to even doubt its possibility, because how could you possibly have two contradictory answers side by side, I think... The reason that we have trouble with that today is that we are fascinated by our shiny new toy called science. We just discovered science and we think it is the coolest thing in the world and we therefore try and shove it in where it doesn't belong, like for example into religion. But religion is much more like art where you can have different paintings of the same thing side by side than it is like physics where if you and I disagree one of us is wrong.
0: And how does the religious community reconcile these different points of view?
1: How does the religious community reconcile different points of view? That is a fascinating question. Mostly what we do nowadays is Uh, Either ignore one or the other so that there's nothing to reconcile or find different ways of interpreting them. And this, by the way, is a perfectly valid religious endeavor. I think this is the job of theologians uh, these days to try and give people a message that they craft. Uh, But it's only one message from the Bible. Frequently when people say, this is what the Bible says, what they really mean, uh, knowingly or not, is this is one of the things that the Bible says
0: it seems to me uh, as an outsider a little bit that the bible it's well it's often used as an authority and and people quote from the bible as if it was a definitive uh, authoritative answer but if you have different versions of that then it does seem to undermine that authority a little bit
1: well the, the question about the authority of the bible and its different messages is a very complicated one and in fact it's one i'm addressing in a book that's going to come out in about a year Uh, it's a little bit hard to understand what it's like if you focus on the Bible only because so many people already have such preconceived notions about it. But let's turn to art for a minute. If I tell you that two different painters painted the same place and the paintings look differently – That's a perfectly reasonable state of affairs. Two different people saw the same place. They have different paintings of it. They both express aspects of what that place is like. In the same way that the different answers in the Bible both express, or sometimes more than two, but they all express aspects of what our life is like and what God wants of us.
0: What did you personally discover from looking at the writings from 2000 years ago that we now call the Bible?
1: When when I when I look at the Bible, I recognize that there is something holy about it. And looking at the text of the Bible in detail has only reinforced that opinion. There was something unbelievably magical about ancient Jerusalem. And it's ancient Jerusalem that gave us the Bible. I think um, even if you don't believe that God was involved, though personally I do. You have to grapple with the fact that these writings offer insight into the human condition better than anything else that most people have ever read. Joel, thanks so much for taking the time to have a chat with me today. Oh, well, Craig, it's been a treat.
0: Dr. Joel Hoffman has served as a faculty member at Brandeis University and Hebrew Union College. He is the author of many books, but today we were speaking about his latest, The Bible's Cutting Room Floor. My name is Craig Barfoot. Thanks a lot for taking the time to listen.